the frogs are present in my voice this morning. Thank you, Andy. Great reading. Did Lil put you up to that? She made you, didn't she? She makes us all do what she wants. That's the way it goes. A lot of force in that tiny little body. Wow, it's amazing to see you all this morning. Nice to get back to some routine, I hope, and uh, an opportunity for us to gather together and to worship the Lord together in this amazing um, environment. You know, it's just really moving and encouraging to, to worship and celebrate together in harmony. There's voices coming up where we're, we're um, singing the same songs and following the same melody, and it all kind of comes together. It coalesces into a very harmonious kind of thing. It's one of the great powers that the Lord has afforded the church of Jesus Christ when we come together and worship collectively. Uh, I'm going to beg for your patience this morning. I'm going to need all of probably the next 45 minutes, at least I'm admitting it up front, um, to get through our text, as you just heard from Andy's reading. Um, There's a lot there, a lot we could camp out on and take many weeks, if not months, in uh, digging into the truths of our passage. If you're new to faith or it's been a while, um, which has been great to see some faces we haven't seen in a while, uh, very excited to have you with us. Um, or if you've been coming pretty consistently, faithfully all along, um, what I want you to know is that a lot of the themes that we're going to be talking about from the, um, the book of Ephesians is the letter that we're studying in the New Testament are quite repetitive because we're building on Paul's major aim to unite the church together, to bring the saints together. And in the last few weeks, we've exposed the fact that Jew and Gentile had great historical divide, which isn't a surprise to us. And so the Lord, through the instrument known as Paul the Apostle, was bringing those two differences together in a very unique way. And the one thing I'd want us to focus on this morning is that unity requires an active engagement. That might sound really basic because it is. But if we think about our typical habits of things or what you and I gravitate towards, I know it's a made up word, but I love using it. We gravitate towards something other than unity by nature. And scripture deals with our nature and it calls it the flesh. And so the nature that you and I are born in doesn't move towards kumbaya, does it? It doesn't naturally go towards, I'm in it for you. I'm in it for anybody, even strangers I haven't met. That's not our normal thing, is it? Normal for us sometimes looks like uh, maybe a domination. We enter relationships saying, I want to be the power figure in this relationship. Or maybe people enter into relationships or or avoid relationships from isolation because they say it's inconvenient, it's messy, it's it's unsafe, so I want to remove myself from it. And then some just kind of throw their hands up in apathy and say it's not worth the effort. You don't do things the way I like them anyway, and it's better off to be on my own. In our nature, before we've met Jesus, before Christ gives us what is the scripture calls a heart of stone, that kind of unmovable, very, um, uh, you know, lifeless uh, thing, he gives us in place of that a heart of flesh. When Jesus comes into our very being, he transforms us and moves us towards unity, even sometimes while we go kicking and screaming. I'm not ready for this. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. I don't like this. We find all kinds of things in our nature again, the part that isn't fully restored or rescued from Jesus coming into our lives. 
We find all kinds of distinction, reasons why we should separate. Our whole planet is full of all these reasons why we can't get along, right? We find them, we create them, we, we obsess about them. Let me see if I can illustrate uh, with this story. There was a man that was in San Francisco, and he was walking along the Golden Gate Bridge, and he saw a second man about to jump over the edge, so he stopped him and he says, hey, partner, he goes, look, surely it, it can't be that bad. I mean, you know, God loves you, right? This guy gets a tear in his eye and he says, well, man, I haven't heard that in a while. Are you are you a Christian? Are you a, a Jew? Or are you a Hindu? Tell me what, what your deal is. And the, the guy that stopped said, no, I'm a I'm a Christian. He goes, really? Me too. Protestant or Catholic? I'm Protestant. I am, too. What franchise? I'm Baptist. So am I. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist. That's a miracle. Me too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? Northern Conservative Baptist. Me too. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist? I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. Me too. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern region? Well, I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region. So am I. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1897 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1912? Uh, I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. So the guy looks at him and says, die, heretic, throws him off the bridge. <laughs> Again, if you're new to faith, our illustrations aren't so gruesome all the time. <clears throat> A little bit dark there. But to prove the point. How many things did those two have to unite over only to eventually get to the end and say, you know what? You're not my brand. You're not my type. Where Christ preaches harmony, mankind goes out of its way to find distinction and separation. So we've been studying in this book in Ephesians in chapter two, how Paul is addressing this double alienation that the Gentile is experiencing. The Gentile is anybody who wasn't born a Jew. They were alienated from the Jews because God had established for his own good reasons and in his own way to select the Jewish people to move his plan through. He had chosen them. So anybody who wasn't born in that camp were isolated, if you will, or outsiders of this whole plan. But not only that, they were human beings. And, and as human beings, we all are born in isolation from the holiness of God. He's absolutely perfect. And we absolutely are not. So there was a double alienation that the Gentile was experiencing. So Paul is addressing that and he's giving them hope. He's giving them good news. So I'm going to dial it back a little bit. We're going to look back in chapter two for a moment, picking up in verse 13. He said, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. You might remember our notes on that. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, in Jesus Christ, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. 
so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In the back of your mind, as we go through this entire text and we try to make these points of application and figure out what are we supposed to do with what the word is telling us today, uh, you're going to have some reflection on how our world has claimed peace efforts and strides and accords and all these kinds of things only to see them fail. Please keep those two in balance. What does God's word do to address hostility? Versus what the world has come up with in its own schemes and plans. What Paul is presenting is a double reconciliation to the Gentile and to the Jew through Christ because they can't achieve salvation through birth. But just being born a Gentile meant they were outside of it. And they certainly couldn't um, achieve it through religion. There was no amount of effort or, or, or religion that they could perform in order to achieve God's righteousness. I'm getting a ring. Everybody else? Anybody else having a headache? The sound man took off. Where'd he go? We don't give him breaks. When do we give him a break? I'll try to talk a little softer. Christ has created a new society where both Jew and Gentile will leave behind their humanity and be reborn. He is making the Gentile and the Jew into one called a Christ one where we get the word Christian. But as with all truths on earth, the, the positional truths that the word of God has given us that, that uh, people have explained to us over the generations, there's a practical reality or a practical kind of outworking of these truths that is tainted by our sin or our failed efforts. So the the point that I want us to see over and over again this morning is that the church is not going to just naturally experience unity. The church will not experience a unity that she has not set her will to achieve. The Lord does leave some things up to us to put the blood, sweat, and tears into, and this is one of those key areas. An active engagement in the heart of Christ will be necessary for we as a body of believers to find the peace that he provides. So we get into our text in chapter three, and we're going to see that Paul is going to basically point all the way back to everything else he wrote in the first two chapters. He's like, so for this reason, all that I said before, and then he's about to say, I'm going to pray for you. But then he interrupts himself with this whole parenthetical statement that we're going to be studying this morning for his, his prayers are kind of like mine and yours, right? He goes to pray and all of a sudden he thinks about a million other thoughts, but his were inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's laying a deeper foundation. He says, before I pray, I want you to understand what my role is as I see it before the Lord. And then he wants to encourage us to adopt some of that same, um, uh, uh, attitude and perspective and everything from what he's going through. So we're going to be studying the interruption to Paul's prayer that's going to be coming in verse 14. So in verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And I want to just stop there because what Paul is laying out for us is that unity is achieved through various um, uh, aspects of what the Lord's led us into. And the first that I'm going to point out from our text is that unity is achieved through purpose. What we're going to see with Paul's words when he says things like, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ, or it's on behalf of you Gentiles, you're going to sense there's purpose, there's clarity in Paul's focus here. Where does that come from? 
I'm going to suggest to you that it comes from several different places, but the first of which is an accurate perspective of who Paul is in the world that God is, is working in. He knows his place. That's why he calls himself, not with false humility, but with a sense of urgency and purpose, a prisoner of the Lord. It's like he was agreeing with Bob Dylan ahead of, hand, uh, ahead of time. You got to serve somebody. I actually made that a little bit easy to understand. I could have done a better impression. Yeah, yes. So that would have been, but that's what he's saying. You got to serve somebody. Sorry about that. Paul understands I've been serving myself through zealous religious activity. I've been serving my, my, my sect and my community by chasing down the rebellious Christians, the ones who are following this phony upstart Messiah from Nazareth. And I've been, I've been weeding out all the followers and snuffing the church and all these kinds of things. And he said, and then, and then Jesus arrested me. Jesus stopped me. He shined a bright light that stopped me dead in my tracks and caused me to walk in blindness to follow. He says, I'm not the prisoner of the people that have had me incarcerated for the last five years on, on false charges. They were saying to Paul, you remember we had this conversation a couple weeks back that in the temple, there were areas that the Gentile wasn't allowed Talk about a great way to advertise and to welcome people into faith in the one true God. They were like, Gentile, you walk through here, you die. Sorry, that's just on you. Imagine. Now, we have some areas in the church building we try to restrict, but not under threat of life necessarily. It's unbelievable that they were, they, that what had turned, what had been intended for a source of promotion and praise to the Lord became a place of pride for them. We own this. We're exclusive and you're not allowed. So they accused Paul. It was like some visitors from the outside were coming in, seeing all that was going on. Paul's now a, a, a sold out, committed believer. He's hanging out with his buddy who's a Gentile. And they said they brought, he brought him into the forbidden place of the temple. And that started a whole series of trials and interviews and interrogations and imprisonment. So for five years, and it's not something he even did for five years, he's imprisoned. He's imprisoned because of a Jewish law under Roman guard. And yet he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of the Jewish elite or I'm a prisoner of the Romans. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Paul would be admitting, like if I asked you guys say, hey, how many of you felt like you were a prisoner to yourself all of these years before finding Christ? There would be hands going up all over the place going, I tried it my way. I tried it with the freedom I thought I had and I just kept running into a brick wall. I just kept ending up at a dead end. I wasn't doing a great job ruling my life, managing my life. And so I would gladly, wholeheartedly surrender my life to the master who is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is all that Paul is expressing. I'm his prisoner. Even later in verse eight, he'll call himself the very least of all the saints. He kind of invents a phrase there. He's saying, I'm the leaster of the least. He's, he's, he's pushing it real, real thick saying, look guys, you used to look at me as some kind of this, that, or the other thing. My name, Paul means little because I wear that with, with, uh, with honor. I am the least of all the apostles of all the saints. What is Paul demonstrating to us? He's got an accurate perspective. Don't you think this is what we get tripped up on? How we view ourselves in the world. All the world is all about identity these days. 
We're all searching for our identity. We all want to um, move great uh, shockwaves to make room for anybody's identity, how they claim to be. Paul has found his. He is solidified in it. His purpose is clear. He says, I am a prisoner of the Lord. This is all for Christ's mission. It, yes, it's on behalf of you. And yes, I get something out of it because I have fulfillment, but I don't deserve anything. I get to participate in this because of what God has done and how he's rescued me. And I'm surrendered to his plan. Even while I'm locked in these shackles in a cold, dark dungeon, I'm fulfilled. He shared a similar message to the church in Philippi because they were also concerned. They were freaked out. He was the great leader. He was the one that was driving a lot of the momentum. And now they were looking at his imprisonment. It was like, well, how are we supposed to move on as a church? So in the letter to the Philippians in chapter one, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, we hear things in church, right? And we're like, yeah, that's what the apostle's supposed to say. It's even what Brent's supposed to read. Just think about this. Did you have, I'm, I'm, I'm looking in the mirror this week. I was confessing to some of my guys, some of the little things that just tripped me up this week. Did you have that response that as soon as you experienced trouble or whatever you would call your imprisonment that you were like, Hey, but at least it's for the gospel. At least it moves the mission of the Lord forward. So I'd gladly suffer in those circumstances. Was that your first thought? Wasn't mine. Paul's perspective is that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What is he talking about? He was chained to a captive audience, quite literally. So he got to preach in the guard's ear all the time. He says, and that spread through the whole jail. They've all heard that I'm on mission for Jesus Christ. And he says, and not only that, but the brothers and the saints, the sisters have heard that this is another way to advance the gospel. And they've started looking at their circumstances of difficulty and their normal timidity as an opportunity to promote that message. Paul's perspective is teaching us that ultimate purpose is never found in entitled individualism, but only in humble surrender. Again, what would you change if you saw your present situation as belonging to God's plan for you and for others? Paul also tells us that he's the recipient of a mysterious revelation. Let's go back to verse two. He says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, that stewardship is a gifting or an administration, administration of grace that was given to me for you, how the keyword mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. And so he's saying, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of man in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, that the Gentiles are members of the same body, that the Gentiles are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You and I hear the word mystery and we think of a whodunit. One of the great differences between Chris Small and Brent Small is how absolutely fanatical she is about a whodunit. 
You know, somebody's gone and committed a crime and they tried to either cover their tracks or they were idiots and they didn't know how to or anything. But the goal wasn't so that they would be discovered. The goal was that they would get away with it. She loves that sort of thing. I feel like it just makes me think too hard. So I try not to do entertainment that makes me think. The difference between a biblical mystery and a whodunit is in a whodunit, uh, it's, it's a trying to conceal, trying to keep things under wraps. Biblically speaking, a mystery is something that was always intended to be revealed but remained hidden for a time. So the mystery, it was part of God's plan to always make this known. He had been showing his hand all along. He had been uh, promising Abraham that, that through his seed, the nations would be blessed. He had been saying to the people of Israel that the Messiah would eventually have all of the nations come to him. Or that Israel as a place would be a city on a hill. So all the, the outsiders would look and say, we want to follow your God as well. When we were in John, the gospel of John, we came to chapter 12 and we saw that one of the indicators to Jesus that it was time, it was time to move into the mission of sacrifice was when the Greeks started coming to hear him and they came from all over and they said, we're seeking Jesus. We want to hear this one from Nazareth and the apostles were like, what do we do with this? The Greeks we even want to hear about him. And so they went and got him and Jesus reaction was it's time. The message is getting out. The father's plan is spreading it was the it was the plan all along. So Paul, to underscore this idea of a mysterious revelation, even later in verse eight, he'll call it an unsearchable riches. He'll call them unsearchable riches. I've always heard that referred to as like an endless, you know, kind of bottomless. You can't plumb the depths of the truths of God, which is true. But this word here for unsearchable means untraceable. He's saying no matter how hard you would have tried to look at the text and say, oh, I know what he's saying here. And you can't make it out yourself because it hasn't been revealed. The mystery was locked in until he decided to lift the veil off of it. These unsearchable riches are untraceable riches. He's saying, I just received God's um, uh, message to me. Paul's saying, I worked so hard all my life to be somebody important. And the thing that has made me, quote unquote, the most important is something I didn't even earn. I I couldn't even command it. I didn't even ask God for it. He just showed up and said, you're going to be my missionary with this message. What was the message? It was the mystery that the Jews and Gentiles would be reconciled together on equal footing through salvation in Christ. Not one side moving over to the other side. It was that both sides would leave that behind and merge into being united in Christ. So Paul saw that his given mission or his purpose was to share the invitation of grace to the Gentiles. His imprisonment only elevated his platform to do that. So he welcomed it. And rather than us look and go, wow, I really marvel at Paul and that's so unreachable for me. I'd never be able to attain that level of faith. Don't block that out. Think he recorded this for us to know thousands of years later under the guidance of the Holy Spirit for us to be motivated in the same way. What was his purpose? He says in verse seven of this gospel, I was made a minister. Now, when you and I hear the word minister, what do we think? We think the black suit and the little white collar. You know, I always think of the guy who's always walking through the chapel, no matter what time of night you're watching these TV and movies and stuff like that. These TV shows and movies where somebody has got to go sit in the chapel to stare at the statue or to light a candle. And the minister always has to come through and straighten out a hymnal. 
I'm like, man, I wish that was my life. I'm just waiting in the building. Hey, somebody walked in. They need to pray. I'm going to go straighten out the hymnal and be like, what's your problem, my child? Have I ever had any of those conversations with you about like that? Like that? I don't know. I'm offended by the TV and movie portrayal of what I do for a living. <laughs> he says, no, of this gospel, I was made a slave. Of this gospel, I was made a servant. Locked in by will. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. He says, I am a slave to the mission of grace. What comes to your mind when you hear grace? Does that sound like something that's forced on you? Paul wants us to hear the word gift. Mercy, as we always explain, mercy is the withholding of the of the punishment that you and I rightly deserve. Grace is the coming in afterwards and saying, I'm going to build you up more than you deserve. I'm going to give you more than you deserve. And Paul is saying, this is my new mission. I used to have to go around straighten everybody out who's doing things wrong. Don't do it that way. Don't do it that way. And now he's saying, I get to run around like like Jesus version of an L.L. Bean customer service rep. You ever gone and returned something at L.L. Bean? I think it's changed a little bit over the years, but it's like when I first went in and had my L.L. Bean experience, like they're never going to take this back. They're like, absolutely. Go pick out the other thing. I was like, I want to work here. What a job all day long. You get to tell people yes. Yeah, of course. This is what Paul is seeing himself as. He goes, I get to go around and tell people, yes, you're welcomed in. Yes, the world has been paved for you. This is a mission of grace. I heard a preacher describe our, our current situation in life as grace deprivation disorder. And I love that label because I think it's what's plaguing us. That we deprive one another of the grace that we have been so clearly shown. I remember one time we were in a marriage counseling situation. This is years and years and years ago. And those, these folks do not attend here and stuff. So, um, and I just remember a long, long time ago, these folks had all the answers of what the church should be, how other Christians should behave. And yet they were coming because their marriage was falling apart. And, and I, as I watched them lob bombs at one another back and forth and back and forth, I, it struck me and I just interrupted the whole conversation. I said, Hey, when's the last time you've shown the, the your spouse any grace whatsoever? And it just stopped everyone in their tracks because they were trying to think, well, I, well, then I, and there was nothing. There is a, an incredible deprivation of, 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 of grace to be able to say, look, I know you don't deserve my forgiveness. I know you don't deserve my help. I know you don't uh, deserve uh, my love, but I'm giving it to you anyway. Why? Because that's what Christ did for me. What if part of our mission, what if our whole mission was to be like Jesus, L.O. Bean, uh, customer service rep? So we saw it as our job to give away something that everybody needs, even if they don't deserve it. This is how we come together. This is how unity is achieved. When we align ourselves with the perspective that we have a mission of grace to this world. Let me make this second point and try to move on with the time that I have here and do it briefly. The second thing I'd like us to see from the text is that unity is achieved through performance. I, I know that word can grab us a little bit different because it sounds like play acting, right? It sounds insincere. It sounds like I'm supposed to just do something that I don't feel like doing. And isn't that 
being hypocritical. And I would challenge, no, that's not what I mean, but I would also challenge the fact that sometimes we are to do the things that are hypocritical. I may not feel like doing a good thing for you. I may not feel like doing a loving thing for you, but God has called me to do it, so I do it anyway. So rather than being hung up on whether I'm being hypocritical, I'm actually engaging in obedience. Maybe I'll feel like somebody who loves you after I do it, and then I won't be a hypocrite anymore. I don't know. But the reality is, is performance isn't necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes we've seen too many people act, say they say they're Christians only to act like it on the outside and not be so on the inside. So we're talking about something different than performance. We're talking about work. We're talking about follow through. We're talking about the duty that uh, that God has called us to. So we get, jump back into verse nine. And Paul says that his mission, his purpose to, was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. I think what Paul's going to do in these last few verses is lay out that he knows he's performing before several audiences and he's welcoming you and I to have that same vision to imagine that there are others watching. So let's spell out who those audiences are. Well, he said already to bring to light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God? So he's definitely referring to a physical world. He's saying that there are people around and he's already said that he's been called to the Gentiles who are outside of the plan of salvation outside. Well, not the plan of, but the message of salvation or the awaiting of salvation. So he knows he's going to a physical world. And he says, though, that his mission is to bring to light this mystery. It's different from a word that we always use in church. When we talk about evangelism, our church is an evangelical church. We talk about evangelizing. All that means is to, to kind of proclaim a truth, is you say the right thing. You say, okay, this is true, and you bark it out, and there it is. You've evangelized. Paul wasn't satisfied just to say he was going to the world, going to the Gentiles just to say something and say, hey, the rest is on them. I did my part. I told them what they needed to hear. He wants to wrestle with it a little bit. He wants to shed light on. He wants to bring them to a place of comprehension, which isn't so clean, which isn't so efficient. This word that he's talking about in light is where we get the word photo. And so as we're looking at the picture, we stare at it to study it or or we remember what was going on in the time when when this photo was taken. And we're trying to enlighten ourselves with the experience that we were having or the one that we didn't have. And we're trying to figure out what were these people thinking at that time this photo was taken. Paul is saying, I'm bringing, I'm shedding light on this because, you know, it it often happens that we go out and we evangelize. We say, God is real. Jesus is the son of God. He loves you. He died for your sins. And they were like, hey, if they don't accept that, that's on them. He wasn't, he wasn't content to just drop the hammer and walk away. He said, this is a new message to a new people. They, they don't know that they're welcomed in. They don't know that the dividing lines that once were there from the Jews are now been brought down and knocked down. They don't know that the, that the, the Jews own Messiah is welcoming them to the table. So he wants to wrestle with it a little bit. Paul can relate to this aspect of light. That's how his conversion took place. As we said before. On the road, he was stopped dead in his tracks by the brilliant light of Jesus Christ, which according to Acts 26, then sent him after a time to open the Gentiles eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul says, I've, I've been put on this earth to preach this message to the Gentiles, but also the Jews. That word everyone in verse 9 means that the Jews needed salvation too, and he wanted them to hear it. So our first audience is the physical world. Our second one is the one where it gets a little bit spooky. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he was, that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is a world that is for now unseen. There is a world that we live out our existence, our lives, our comings, our goings, our, our faith and our, and our failures and all of these things. We live a life before a world that we don't see. And Paul was really good at bringing this up from time to time. He always was bringing up something about angels or others that would be, or, or as we'll see as we get further into Ephesians, you know, the spiritual forces, even in dark places. Paul thought, thought it was important for us to be mindful of the fact there's, there's an entire battle going on that we can't see. There's support coming to our aid that we can't see. There's resistance coming into our lives that we can't always see. And so he's giving a clue here that the life that you and I are called to live in unity impacts them as well, which is weird for us to think about. We would think they know it already. They've heard all the plan. They've been brought up to speed and they're just watching it play out. But that isn't how it is. In fact, Peter had said this when we were studying first Peter, he was talking about all the historical writers of the scriptures and how they were working it out and they were writing this prophecy and they're like, we don't even get this stuff. We don't even know like when it's supposed to happen or how it's supposed to happen or what his name will be or what he's supposed to look like. And they're just writing it in faith because the Holy Spirit is leading that through their pen, quill, whatever they wrote with. And he's, and, and, he, and they were, they were marveling at the fact we don't even get what we were reading. Let me just read the passage for you here. Now that I've talked through half of it, verse 10 concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but us, that they were writing these things for us to eventually have that light shining on and go, oh, now we know what they were talking about. In the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And here's this little creepy little uh, thing here. Things into which angels long to look. We always picture angels on clouds. So let's. Stick with that vision, even though I don't know where we get that from. But anyway, the angels are looking over the clouds going, I wonder what's going to happen next. Like, we're really fascinated. They're getting out their little angelic popcorn, probably smart food or something, right? And they're just like looking at it and everything. And they're just like, how is this going to play out? How is this thing going to go? It's fascinating to think that they're not fully up to speed on everything that God intends to do. That there's an aspect of this that that mystery is being unveiled to them as well. So Paul says that we're doing this before them, but for a point, for a purpose. What is it that they're going to get out of this? They're going to see that the wisdom of God is going in so many different directions that they never comprehended. That word manifold, if you've seen a manifold and stuff, you know it's something that, that goes in a lot of different directions. So it's varied. And this wisdom of God is like, you know, if they're eating the, the angelic popcorn, they're like, 
this is amazing. We got to go sing. We got to go do something. We got to go shout his praises and everything. He's, it's all playing out. The church is coming together. It's united. It's solving this problem. It's working over here. This is incredible. And they're exuberant and they're elated. And they go and they shout the praises of God. Your wisdom is great. It's above everything. But there's another force at play and they're looking at it kind of going, hey, wait a second. We might have chose the losing side here. You know, we fell with Satan. We thought he was on the fast track and he was going to be the, the leader and the one to dethrone God and everything. And so we've been doing all his work and trying to trip this whole thing up, but it doesn't seem to be working. We're on the losing side here. Do you think like this throughout the day? As you're scrolling, as you're punching in, as you're, as you're spending, it's weird, right? It's outside of our normal human experience. But these are the things that, that cause us as we're studying God's word that brings us into reality. This is reality. And, and what we'll be talking about for the rest of the, of, of the letter is that our third audience is before the church body. Verses 12 and 13, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose art over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. There's so much here. And when I first saw this verse, I was like, that's what we're going to spend all of our time talking about. And instead, I have to do the exact opposite. He says, in whom we have boldness. Is our world crying out for boldness? We call it positivity now accepting ourselves and just stepping out into the world bravely? Are we not hungry for boldness? Do we not want access to the greatest of all um, events or access to the person who is on top of their game or something like that? Don't we like to be able to say, I know him or I know her? We crave that access. And of course, having that confidence, where does it come? It comes through our faith in Christ who is unveiling this mystery and working out this plan that he has taken the veil that separated people from the presence of God. And when, when Christ uh, died, he tore it from the top to bottom in a, in a miraculous event and said, you're not separated anymore. We perform this work of faith in Christ. We say, well, we're not supposed to work our way towards salvation, and we certainly don't. But when Jesus was asked, what work can we do to be saved? He says, the one work you can do is to have faith in the one whom God has sent. Paul is portraying for us all that Jesus did. Jesus came on a single-minded mission to execute his father's plan. Jesus was a quote-unquote prisoner to the plan of God. And that might set uncomfortable for some of you. But again, thinking back to Paul's very positive and jubilant expression of being a prisoner to the thing that he was finding joy and participating in. Jesus was surrendered, even though we understand that they were all part of the same plan. Jesus was surrendered to executing the plan of the father. By revealing God's will, his revelation to mankind and laying his life down for the sins of all on this mission of grace. The writer of Hebrews then tells us, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, imprisoned himself, surrendered himself to the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand 
of the throne of God. The focus this morning from our text is that unity that we are being called to, that we are empowered to experience and to build is not going to come from us just going, well, someone else will get around to it. Someone else will do the right thing. It's you and I engaging in the missions, getting, getting over our stuff, perceiving who we're supposed to be, and then moving forward in it. Let me see if I can illustrate this a little bit. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and to help me. We're just going to illustrate. This won't go on too long, and then we'll continue in our, our worship time. Um, the, the, uh, the guitar is um, an instrument that you can tune to itself. Um, typically you would, uh, pick the standard tuning of E on this top note. Is that on there? Is it there? All right. We're hearing it. So then from E, you can say, I want the rest of the strings to be in tune. I'm a little rusty. So I have a guitar that's in tune for my purposes. I heard the worship team was going to do a song that we haven't done in a long time. And I was like, oh, that's right. I've forgotten all about that. So I wanted to play along with it and hear it. So I got my guitar off the wall and I, I, I tune it up the way that I want it to be. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I can, I can worship the Lord now in this. And uh, so, uh, again, froggy, rusty. But let me just sing a chorus and demonstrate to you how um, it comes out when you tune your guitar, hopefully. Let's see. <clears throat> Sing now, lift your voice and cry out. Awesome is our strong God, mighty is our God. Sing now, raise your hands and shout out. Awesome is our strong God, mighty is our God. That's also an opportunity for you to learn the chorus a little bit ahead of time. So there you go. Now you have a preview of what they're going to sing. So I tuned that in a way that I was like, okay, this is comfortable for me. I can sing it naturally. Um, it was easy on my fingers depending on the chords I wanted to play. And everything worked well for me. See where I'm going with this a little bit? But uh, as, as, uh, as we've discovered, a lot of our best worship happens in the context of a band, and that's part of what we're talking about in our message, that we are called to unite with others. So I was like, well, this is going to sound a lot better with a band. So I asked the guys and the girls, hey, would you join me in this and stuff? So they said, sure. So we tried it a little bit this morning. So Gus is going to count us in. I'm about ready to lose my microphone. That's why you're not on the worship team anymore. I know. <laughs> Kick me right off. Are you ready? I think so. Are you ready? Yeah. Ready? Sing out, lift your voice and cry out, awesome is our strong. You feeling uncomfortable yet? Mighty is our God. I, I'm not seeing enough curling faces. Dean Barrow's in the back. His head is splitting right now. Oh, this was intentional. This is a demonstration. The, the, the point, the point is this. Let me just put this down for a second. The point is this, is that we are approaching life on our own terms for what fits us and suits us better. 
We want to have a life that is in tune with what's comfortable for me. And we think about me, me, me. How does this church serve me? Do I have a church that will use my gifts? All those kinds of stuff. That's naturally what we move towards. But supernaturally, the work of the Spirit is bringing us towards a life for other people. That we would be imprisoned in the best possible way to a life that thinks about how does everybody else, well, what does everybody else need from me as I serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Unity isn't achieved by accident. We have to adjust our perspective to the purpose that God has given us, not to remain as individuals, but to join the whole. I was playing a guitar that was tuned. And unless you had perfect pitch and knew exactly what an E was going to sound like, you'd be like, yeah, that guitar sounds in tune. I start trying to play it with other people who have tuned to the right pitch and I'm way off. The purpose of unity isn't just for our good feelings or our success but for the display of God's great wisdom to the audiences all around us. It's him who is to shine. It's his plan and his wisdom that's to shine, not our own selves. So the question then becomes for us, are you playing to your own tuning or are you striving to join the band, the one that God has called us to, the one that he has intended to display his varied wisdom in a heart and a mission of grace? Are, is that the one that we're seeking to join? Would you please stand? Let's close in prayer before we sing. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for... I want to thank you, Lord, for the relevance of your word. I want to thank you, Lord, for the patience that you display to us. And I thank you, Lord, that you continue to show us your brilliant plan. You continue to show us your many ways that your grace meets us in our life. So help us, Lord, to be surrendered to this. Help us to see that a surrendered life to you is one of blessing and of care and of protection. It doesn't stifle us or it doesn't hold us back or it doesn't rob us of joy. It provides all of those things, Lord, because you're benevolent. You're good and you care for us. But, Lord, you care for your glory. And because you hold your, your own glory up above all, we know that your plan will work. So help us to trust it. Help us to walk in it. Help us to show others the grace that you've shown us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.